Welcome to the D-Program Podcast. I'm your host, Dexter Curley. I should say one of your hosts, Dexter Curley. The uh, other host is currently um, putting some babies to bed. So I'm recording this quick intro. It is almost 9 o'clock on January 15th. Shannon said if she is going to continue to participate in the podcast, I have got to get consistent. And so we have to post a podcast on the 15th of every month. And of course, uh, it's just like me to wait till 9 o'clock on the 15th to record the intro. So anyway, I don't know where you are when you're hearing this. Hopefully you're in a good place. Hopefully you're having a good time. This is a little bit of a longer episode. We go into a lot of detail because we were talking about Shannon's college experience, which was, uh, you know, I think she was in, we talk about it in the episode, she was in school for a long time. And one of the things that, you know, whenever I was coming up with what I was going to say for this intro, one of the things that came up, came to mind was how easy it is to make excuses. Like, for instance, I can make a lot of excuses as to why I'm recording this intro, you know, probably 30 minutes before I'm about to post it on the night I have to post it. Uh, you know, I could make those excuses, but then there's other people who perform in spite of adversity. That's a whole nother thing altogether, and that's that's more of Shannon's style. Shannon likes to, um, you know, look at her planner and if there's an opening in the planner, like a little gap, she likes to have something, you know, critical to to shove into that gap. So whether it was school or taking care of the kids um, or participating in like extracurricular things, like she did a whole lot of volunteer work through this and a lot of the times, she always would take the harder path. And for that, I have great respect. Uh, you know, she, while she was working on her master's program, you know, we we had a kid. She already had a, we already had a kid. We moved to Stephenville into a one-bedroom house. Uh, a lot of, you know, not, in no way would I call them, like, struggles because, you know, we we were blessed to be able to choose everything that we were participating in. So it's not really like fair to pretend like they were, you know, struggles or something really difficult to go through. But they ha- they all had their challenges. And at no point in time did Shannon ever shy away from work. So anyway, I just had to, you know, go into some of that, uh, just brag a little bit. But this episode, we get into... A pretty wide range of topics. I mean, we talk a lot about linguistics and some of the different things that Shannon had learned over, you know, well, really undergrad and grad graduate school. We kind of talk about both. It's It was a lot of fun, and it was really fun to recap a lot of the things that she had learned. And so I hope you enjoy this episode for that reason. We, you know, Shannon understands this stuff at a pretty high level. So even though I've kind of, you know, I would say somewhat journeyed through the educational experience with her, you know, just very peripherally, like listening to her over coffee or just, you know, just listening. She would be explaining something crazy that she was learning. Uh, 
and a lot of the stuff is still hard for me to grasp. So uh, it it is definitely a mind expanding episode in my opinion. Like you probably will be confronted with a lot of things that you've never thought about just because of the nature of linguistics, which is a sort of a wild field and very interesting. I mean, it's, you know, they're just barely touching the surface on this linguistic stuff. And uh, anyway, listen to the episode. Tell me what you think. It, it gets pretty deep. Anyway, I wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, please follow us on Instagram. That's kind of, I think, the main platform that we're going to try to engage through with social media. Uh, follow me at Panhandle Primate. Uh, follow Shannon at Shan Kearley. That's like S H A N N C A R L E Y. And then you can also follow us at the uh, Kearley Cultivation. Uh, Kearley spelled the same way that I just spelled it for Shannon. But. You know, you can come and follow along because we got a lot of uh, different things going on. Uh, I'm working on my garden. I'm about to start some chickens. We're working on the house. Uh, the little boys are growing up and being rambunctious, so they are on a lot. You know, the other day I found an arrowhead while we were hiking around, and so I think we have a post about that. So it's just some fun stuff, just kind of living out in the country, and um you know, hiking around and uh, getting into whatever we get into. So follow us on Instagram for that kind of stuff. And like 2023 is looking like it's going to be pretty busy for us in a very good way. Um, you know, Shannon's working on some stuff. I'm working on some stuff. And y'all can follow along and check it out and see what y'all enjoy. Or if y'all are into any of the stuff we're working on, like finishing the house and stuff. I might have already said that. I'm not exactly sure. I kind of got off my notes. I was looking out the window. It's like pitch black and we're in the middle of the country. And sometimes it just kind of blows my mind. Like I can see four lights out of my window right now. It's pitch black. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, um, as you know, the podcast, what we're going to try to do with it in this next year is just hit y'all with some more thought provoking topics, discussions, the main goal is to think. So the goal is we're going to try to kind of push ourselves um, in the research and then in the execution of the episode. And hopefully y'all can listen to it and it will inspire thoughts in, like in y'all. It's the podcast. It's not really the goal of it isn't necessarily to like hit you with a definitive like educational point you know it's we're not we're not trying to get you somewhere necessarily we're just trying to open a door and then see where you go and then hopefully you'll report back to us and uh, we can make the show better and incorporate some of y'all's ideas because that's you know really what it's about it's like we want to pull the ideas together so one of the ways that you can help the podcast is by of course, listening, that's number one, but rate it on whatever, like, in, you know, whatever platform you're listening to it on. So whether it be Spotify or Apple, uh, or I guess even through my website, you can put a like on my website. That'd be cool to see. And so you can share it, you know, if you share it on uh, social media or something like that, that'd be cool. Tag us in it. Uh, that way we can, you know, 
say what's up and say thank you. And then uh, most importantly, just enjoy listening to the podcast. That's the number one thing. Uh, We have had some people reaching out to us lately saying that they're enjoying the shows. And uh, that's what it's all about. You know, we're trying to produce content. Uh, Back whenever I was the Panhandle Primate Podcast, I had a uh, ramble. So you can probably look back in the episodes if you're interested at all. But it was uh, called DIY Media or something like that. DIY Podcast or something. And the whole thing was about how we're now in this very unique cultural space that we've never been in before, uh, to my knowledge, where every single person owns the means of production within their like has it within their own capability right like i can produce a podcast and it is now listed on the same place as you know uh npr podcast or something like that so it's a it's really uh what is it demarketized i'm not exactly sure that word uh it's it's like in pieces in my head i just can't pull it out so anyway, um, I guess I'm rambling long enough. Really enjoy this episode. Uh, listen to it and let us know what you think. We we really want the response. Like I want to hear, you know, Shannon has been pushing for a long time to get a lot more linguistics on the episode, like on the episodes, which I feel like almost every every single episode, just because it's like her specialty and what she's interested in, it kind of works its way in. Uh, but we have been playing with the idea of doing some like more targeted, specific, um, you know, linguistics episodes. So anyway, uh, just throwing some of that stuff out there. I've been talking long enough. This is a long enough intro. Hopefully you enjoy this episode. And uh, until next time, peace out. What gives you the right? Well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. Let's see it. Well, what if there is no tomorrow? So stop melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. I'm the best chance you've got. Oh, that's weird. Did you know your shirt only has one button buttoned? I did not know that. <laughs> it looks kind of funny. But it's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you just, yeah, I think that's what's kind of <laughs> It's just that my just my belly button is showing. Yeah, it's like a little diamond around your belly button. Ooh. It almost looks like it's intentional. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like to air out the belly button occasionally. <laughs> you know? Okay. So this episode has been a long time coming. Yes. Um, because this is the Masters of Linguistics episode. So we've been waiting for... How long have you been in working on your Masters? Is it I five I think it's years? about four years, maybe four and a half. Because you went back for your undergrad when you were pregnant with Emmett. Yeah, because I you went back 2018. 18, 19, 20, 21. Or I, I applied 2018. And maybe started in fall of 2018. Four and a half? Five? Okay. 
Well, a long time. It has been a long time. I mean, really, like when you went back for your undergrad, which was after we were already married. um, Wait, hold on. Let me think about this real quick. Yeah. uh, It was was fall of 2018. I mean, that was after you were pregnant when you went back with your undergrad. Because you were pregnant with Emmett. I was pregnant with Callahan in in grad school. In grad school. Yeah. And uh, Callahan is now three and a half. Yeah. So, you know. Adding it's up been the, a minute. <laughs> the, invu- the in vitro in vitro years of Callahan. It's been a minute. But so, yeah, we've talked about this before. But I've been in school since I've been pregnant with Emmett. Right. Since finishing up undergrad and then grad school. So and, it's been a, a long time of school. So that's actually where I want to start the episode with is the uh, the intellectual journey of uh, scholastichood, academia, scholasticship. Yeah, academia, which I've, <laughs> I have no experience with, it, which I think is funny that you have your master's degree and I uh, don't have any college really at all. Yeah, I mean, you helped me so much. Or like I, you were you were there during all yeah, of it I was with me. There, I was there for it, but it wasn't necessarily like I was, you know. Uh, You've never actually taken like I've yeah, never co- taken classes. Any, yeah, yeah, any classes. So, but uh, which, which I thought was interesting because when we first got together, I talked you into dropping out of college. Yeah. <laughs> um, because you weren't really passionate about hey, it. Hey, wait tables, babe. It'll be great. Well, my main thing was that you weren't <laughs> passionate about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, uh, you were just kind of like, oh, I'll get a degree, and I, but I don't really want to teach. And that's currently like that. You were on the path to teach. I thought school. I was going to go be a high school teacher. I knew I liked English. And so that was just going to be like the perfect fit. Then when I got to school, I started taking the education classes and just kind of realized it wasn't what I was thinking it was, and I wasn't passionate about it, didn't want to do it. So I was just going to continue on with the degree and just get it, even though I knew I wasn't going to teach. Which And that, that's when you came in and said, just just drop out and figure, wait until you know what you're going to do. Right. And so you did. You dropped out. And then it seemed, I think it was... I can't remember if you were pregnant with him yet or we were deciding that you were going to get pregnant uh, whenever you ended up ended up going back uh, for for your undergrad. And that's, I think, what what was really interesting was the difference between your your first time going and then your second time going. Oh, yeah. It was a huge difference. Because you were way more dedicated, like... When we first started dating, I remember you would kind of be like, oh, I don't really feel like going to class or oh, I got homework, but I don't really feel like doing it. You were I kind was of, not, which is You weird. weren't into it. I'm, I'm, I'm typically a very good student, but then I feel like I had the very typical college experience where I partied and wasn't really like well, and I, I mean, paying I, attention. I think, so. you know, we don't, as a, as a culture, like to encourage people to take breaks because it's almost like this concept, and I know I've heard teachers talk about it, where like kids leave, kids leave from for the summer, and when they come back, it's like they forget everything that they had learned. So you're almost starting over at square one. And so we have this very linear view of education where it's almost like stack one block on top of the next block, and if you take a break all of those blocks are going to fall over and then you'll never be able to go back, which is a very odd way of viewing education. Like, I think that that 
is one of the things that's indicative of a failed education system is the fact that, uh, you know what I'm saying. You know, I get it. it. Yeah. I think a lot of it for college with my experience was the problem was me, but I do also think there's those issues within education as well. Well, and I mean, you were a 19 year old dumb girl who wanted to go drink beer and dance and have fun. <laughs> and I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that any, everybody, you know, you should be entitled. We don't have these, uh, poor, like built into our culture very well. Whereas, you know, and I'm not a expert on, you know, hunter gatherer societies, but I, I feel like in other cultures, other societies, you almost have these built in periods where it's like, oh, you're an adolescent. Be an adolescent. Oh. Sorry. Shannon didn't spam s- risk. Shannon didn't silence her phone. But uh, you know, you have these built in periods of time where it's like, you're an adolescent, be an adolescent. You're but you know, in our culture it's always like like to go back to the building block mentality, you know, if if you're a football player, well, you're a football player as long as you're playing football. And, you know, when you're in middle school, that builds for high school and then you're on JV and then that builds for varsity and then you're in college. And then if you take a break, though, you're, you're done. Well, and I think that was one of my biggest problems is that as soon as I realized I wasn't going to be a teacher, I didn't know what to do. Right. It just felt like, well, why am I taking these classes, or why do I care about these classes when I'm not going to be a teacher? But I don't really know what else I'm going to do because I didn't really have a lot of people prepare me for that, and and, and not this, to put that on other people. And like I didn't know, I wasn't mature enough to like go out and seek something else at that point. Well, and I don't think you had the eye to see it yet. But, yeah. But when uh, that was kind of my next point here, uh, intro to linguistics. Whenever you went back to school. And I think at the time you had switched from education to just doing English degree. Yeah, just right? straight English. Um, and that's when you took uh, your linguistics class with Dr. Jacobson, right? Yeah, or- so I had taken a class with him during the first time I went to school. And I knew I loved it. I just didn't know pursuing it was an option. Was that a linguistics class? Yes. Okay, so uh, what what grabbed you about that first linguistics class. Well, what's actually funny, the whole reason I got a little bit, not the whole reason, one of the reasons I got maybe disillusioned with my education degree is because I I love grammar and I always knew I loved grammar. So I went in to get an English education degree thinking that I was going to learn a lot about grammar and then I learned nothing about grammar. It was all education, lesson planning, and then like English was like learning how to teach reading. And then I had English classes where we read literature. And all that's great. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I just really wanted more grammar. You were more of the the technical. Yeah. A little bit less about the artistic side. You you were almost more of a technically driven. Yeah, like, and I just didn't have the what, words for like, it. Like, what is language? One, I didn't know that. I didn't right, even know right. ling- linguistics existed. Right, but that's so, what I'm, so that's what the question is like. In that first class, you know, you entered into that class, uh, I would say, ignorant. Yeah. Right? As to what as to what language was, but like, so what was that that biggest jump? That first like jump for you? What do you mean? Okay, so I would uh, to to use language I don't really understand. 
you almost went in as like a prescriptivist, right? Yeah. And then, but then you changed from a prescriptivist to a... Descriptivist. Yeah, descriptivist. Yes. And so like, what was that transition like? I mean, it sounds so cheesy and cliche, but I just, as soon as I took the first class, I loved it. Because it it was literally, I was sitting there thinking, this is what I want to pursue. This is what I've been expecting out of my entire degree. And here it is. But it's just one class, and I didn't know there was any option of pursuing it. Okay, but explain what what it like. What is it? It was just breaking down language. But like, what is prescriptivist versus? Oh well, do you want to get into that now? Well, just yeah. I mean, like, well, like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Is that could because, be its own little thing. Because to me, I think that 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 was part of what you know hooked you about it was yeah. that that it almost opened up language in a direction that you didn't even know. Existed. So beforehand, I liked grammar, like I said, and I pictured grammar, as many of us do, as a red pen. Like, I wanted to correct people's Mm. grammar. I wanted to grade papers. I wanted to fix commas and move prepositions, right? And so that is called prescriptivism. It is what we learn in school. Um, It is, to simply put it, it is how language is prescribed. So it's um, top down. It just means what are the schools saying is the correct grammar? So um, it's basically telling native speakers what is or isn't correct, right? So again, uh, don't end the sentence with a preposition. Don't split infinitives. You know, make sure you say well instead of good, who, whom instead of whom. Like, make sure these are all correct. It's like rules you have to be taught. Yes. Right? Those are rules that you don't naturally just do, right? Those are rules. Yeah, they're rules. So there's a reason that no matter how many years of schooling we all have, we still enter sentences with preposition. We still do it. Which that actually is a completely, like, made-up rule. They did it because in Latin you literally could not end your sentences sentences with a preposition and they wanted English to sound more fancy and Latin-y so they said well in English we're not going to do that which makes no sense because we actually can and it works perfectly fine and now that was like what um era um 1800s is kind of when a lot of that in the United States I'd have to look that up to see if it was happening in England as well Okay, I'm not not important. I was just for framing in my head, you know. Yeah. Because I do remember that some of that stuff was um, some of that stuff, you know, is very deliberate. Uh, yeah, there it was very deliberate because you know that's what we always joke about, like Shakespeare, right? Like Shakespeare is this great. <sighs> just author he is literature right Mm -hmm. he didn't study grammar they didn't teach grammar back then he was just writing and that's the reason that well if you were to actually like grammatically study his work he does a lot of odd things in it but nobody was teaching him grammar he still knew how to use language though right Right. like could you imagine if if he had had like a prescriptivist teacher like above him you know, telling him like you can't do this, like, that's hey, wrong. You know, this is a pretty decent line here, but you know, you got a couple of problems with it, like almost correcting, yeah, like so, almost correcting the art out of, yeah. So, if you think to. about like before the 1800s, people weren't taught grammar, that was kind of a silly idea. Like, you had to go teach a native speaker how to speak. We already know how to speak, right? right? That just wasn't something you had to do. Um, and really a lot of the grammar guides started out with teaching people how to speak a second language, 
then it kind of came about like, well, if there's all these rules and we need to make sure our rules are good rules so that English is a good language. Mm. And then we need now teach these to native speakers. And then it just goes from there. Right. So prescriptivism is prescribed. And I can be pretty hard on it. It's not necessarily all wrong. Of course, when you're writing, it is fine to have standards, right? Commas do make a difference. And when you're trying to read papers, it is helpful to have a standard. Right. So I'm not saying that that is all bad. It's just when we think of it as right versus wrong, it gets pretty hairy. Right. And even even commas as an example, like there's very few hard and fast right and wrongs. Well, so then, well, here, just real quick. On the other hand is descriptivism. Right. Which is what linguists study. It is how people speak. What do native speakers actually sound like? And nobody has to be taught that. We don't go to a, a one-year-old and say, okay, let's conjugate verbs today. Let's learn syntax today. Which has no, been, like, I would say, has been one thing that's been really fun with you being uh, in the linguistic field as our kids have grown. Because it's been funny, be, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can like hear a little kid speaking like a little kid. And it's cute and it's wrong, but nobody knows how it's wrong or why it's wrong. But except you do because you've taken early childhood development and like different language stuff. And so it's been really funny because like Callahan will say something and you'll be like, huh, that's interesting because he did this and he naturally did this and you'd have to tell him to do this. Or like Emmett will say something and you'll, you'll laugh because you're like, oh, well, it's funny because he's, he hasn't learned yeah, it's to so not fascinating follow to watch that it. rule in that instance, you know. And, yeah, and so it it's really interesting because I'm not I'm not very good with parts of speech, uh, the technical aspect of language. I've never really been very good with understanding. You know, I can speak all day, but it's hard for me to whenever I'm like sitting there, like breaking it down and, and trying to understand it, but you like, that's kind of what you naturally do. So you're able to analyze speech, uh, way faster than I'm able to analyze speech. So you're able to see these like little, almost quirky things that like little kids just naturally do. Well, I think it was last year or last semester, even maybe, I don't remember. Um, which I guess is now last year, I was writing a paper on do, a, do insertion, which English has where we have to insert do for questions or negations um, or emphasis. Like he did do that. Um, and Emmett was getting do insertion as I was writing the paper pretty much. Mm. Right? Because like little kids don't have it. Callahan, Callahan may be starting to use it, but he does not use it all the time. Right. Like that's something that they do pick up as they go. They don't learn that at two. Right. Like it kind of is slow. Like that, yeah, it trickles in. Yeah, so it was kind of fun. Like I'm studying this topic and watching it happen in front of my eyes, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. No, that is cool. And it's cool how the uh, the brain, that's its trick. Yeah. The, and so as the, you know, these little kids, their brain is literally growing, developing, and changing. And you can see how it, you can hear how it impacts their language based off of the structure of their brain as it's expanding. Yeah, which so a lot of the times that when when kids make mistakes, quote unquote, 
a lot of times it's just them figuring out the rules of the language. So, for example, a big one with kids is that they add ed to like past tense words that shouldn't have it. So, for example, he brained it to me instead of he brought it. Right. Well, that's irregular, right? So they haven't learned yet that that's an irregular verb. Right, right. And honestly, in the future, give it 100 years, it probably will be brained. That's right. the direction everything is moving. Right. So the test that linguists give to students is called the WUG test. Right. The, um, the WUG test. I WUG, he, he WUGs. And can't you just add, like, I WUG, he WUGs. They'll get it. Right. Um, today I WUG, yesterday I WUGged. Right. They know. They know that past tense is ed. Even though wugged is nothing. It's nothing. But they just they know the concepts. They know how to place it where it belongs. Mm-hmm. And um and so yeah they they naturally know how to place ed onto words and they haven't yet learned the irregular verbs. Right. So they're learning the rules and then they'll have to go back and learn the irre- irregular rules oh, later. A little injection here for anybody who's either a parent or friends of a, like a young child. Uh, one of the things that you learned, I think it was in early childhood development, that one of the largest indicators as to if an individual is going to be successful later in their life is how many words they hear day in and day oh, out. Oh, it, yeah, it on, is like linked on average. to their success as an adult. Like, like just... <clears throat> To the point where some people are like even putting like word counters on their kids. Yeah, that was actually an invention. Yeah, so that they can make sure that they're hitting these right. And that's know. why they say to read to your kids. Like right. reading, they, they also say like reading is one of the biggest indicators because you're hearing new words over and over. You right. Know? So like that but, is but it's, so It's big. just so interesting sometimes because uh, oftentimes what we think is going to make our kids successful in life, we, we almost want to do all this artificial stuff. Like I want to make sure that they're, they got hooked on phonics super early or that they're doing this math with a tutor super early or piano or something, right? You got all these different things. And now granted, I'm not saying any of those things are bad to do with your kid, but then it's something as simple as talk to your kid, just talking to to your kid, spending time with your kid, you know, speaking to your, you know, I'm not saying speak to your kid as if they are an adult, but you have to be speaking to your kid a lot, you know, that you got to have that interaction with them. And, and, uh, you know, I guess you could maybe to a degree, it's hard because, you know, if you put your kid in daycare, then your kid is one amongst 25, 30 kids. So the, the time that they're spending directly with an adult is diminished the time that they're spending with other children is, and you know, I like the term pooling of ignorance. Uh, I had a youth group whenever I was in youth group in high school, uh, one of the parents that would help out, he used to always say that, you know, like, Hey, you're, this is cool that y'all are having these conversations, but it's a pooling of ignorance. None of y'all know anything, you know? And sometimes I wonder if it's like that with kids, you know, you got a room full of like 30 kids and one adult. It's just a pooling of ignorance, you know, although they can figure out a lot of stuff on their own. Well, uh, I guess if I plug another podcast, when I was listening to Pod Crushed with that, uh, I don't know how to say his name correctly, Gabor Mate, Gabor uh, Mate. Gabriel Mate. It's not Gabrielle. It's, it's not? Gabor or Gabor. I don't okay. know how to pronounce it. I don't know. I, I, and I hate that, but yeah. I, I don't know how to say okay. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. He does actually talk about this. This is a complete tangent, but he talks about how parents are supposed to bond or kids are supposed to bond with parents. And not necessarily other other kids at a young age. Right. But if they're not around parents, they'll bond with other kids. And we have that like tendency in our society to do that, to like clump 
okay, we're going to clump all the three-year-olds together, all the four-year-olds together, all the five-year-olds, and all the six-year-olds. Whereas probably in nature, quote-unquote, whatever that means, we're going to do that in another podcast. But, um, you know, you'd be, you'd have, you know, three-year-olds with 10-year-olds, you know, 16-year-olds are taking care of the eight-year-olds. You have all, you have this wide range of brain, of brains, like, you know, they say that the the male brain doesn't actually mature until 25. Maybe even later. Maybe even later. If, if at all. <laughs> if at all. You know, but I think it is kind of interesting. Uh, that, that's all side well, notes. So to get back to language, mm-hmm. when kids are around adults, they are learning the rules of language. Now, I'm saying adults. It can be just older kids. Now, a two-year-old's not necessarily learning language from another two-year-old, Right. But if they are hearing language, if they're interacting with it, they are learning it. That right. is how we all are able to speak English outside of some impediment. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, outside of like if they autism actually, or something. Yeah, outside of if they actually have a disability. Or like like one of the things that you learned was like structure of the mouth. Yeah, so they might there are have physical like, disabilities. Yeah, you that might can, have like a tongue problem. But or outside of that, every human being who engages with language will learn how to speak. There's no need for rules. Right. With prescriptive rules. With prescriptive. So this is what's so fascinating with language and the reason that I was so hooked onto it like just immediately was that English does have rules. And so any language has rules. It just isn't, they're not the rules that we're taught in school. Right. They internally have rules. They have structures. So it's funny because I was sitting there thinking I needed to like go correct people's grammar. I needed to grade papers because I want people to know the rules when in reality, we all have rules. We internally have rules. And these are the ones that we speak and nobody really knows about well, like them. Culturally, you have rules. Well, that is, gets into yeah, pragmatics that's a def- and a whole we'll get, thing. We'll, so uh, now that we're done, you know, I don't think we're done. We might revisit it. Uh, I the- would like it, whether or not now, later, because I, I did want to just discuss some of the rules that exist within English just because I think it's kind of fun and it gives people some context. Yeah, I got I got a little spot down okay, here. Okay, then we'll get you. back to that. Um, but uh, now that we're done talking about your like Paul to Damascus uh, experience, which, you know, like that's the funny thing. Like Paul was literally like murdering Christians. You know, he was responsible, I think, for the uh, stoning of Stephen. You know that part? Yeah. So he literally stoned this guy to death. And then he's like walking between towns and three days later, he's now, hey guys, I'm now one of you, you know, it's kind of an interesting, but you went from like red pin to like of the people. I think that's interesting. Oh yeah. And there um, are consequences to that. Like now I wasn't murdering people, right? But fast forward a few years and I sat in a colonialism class learning about language. Well, we're getting to that. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, one of the things I think would be interesting for intro to linguistics, uh, is you to talk about the wheel of linguistics. Cause I don't think that that type of concept exists in other like disciplines. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. I so know like, you know how like Dr. Jacobson said yes. like, okay, You've got okay, that's what I thought you were talking about, but I yeah. want to make sure. So basically, when I first started learning linguistics, and this is going to be true for any like linguistics 101 class, you have to learn something you have no concept of until you can learn all of it to have a concept of it. 
If that made any sense at all. Yeah, it's almost like you, you will almost you can't not learn a you can't learn a chunk of it until you have the full picture of the whole thing, and then you can begin to understand yes. the chunks. So that's what Doctor Jacobson would always say: is you have to learn the whole pie for it. It won't make sense, but you got to learn it. And then once you put it all together, it makes sense. Just because it's something so foreign, like most of us don't learn it in schools. Although now I have seen some schools start to talk about phonemes, at least, and some things like that. But linguistics is so different from what we learn in school that it's like, hey, you just got to slice in, just start somewhere, start with this vocabulary you don't know, these concepts you don't know, and just get through it. And by the end, you'll understand it. And it's true, you do. It starts to all make sense. It all comes together at the end. Yeah, and, and I, I was, whenever you were learning that stuff, you know, you, you would come home and talk to me about it. And I, I thought that was a very interesting aspect. Like once, you know, because there's so many different aspects wrapped up in what language, and you know, we all take it for granted. You know, I think oftentimes the most miraculous things that we experience as human beings, we just take for granted. Like, uh, you know, the fact that your vision, your, your eyeballs don't focus on everything. It only focuses on what you need to focus on, which is kind of amazing because it's like, how does it know that you need to focus on something prior to you focusing on it? And, and then, you know, it's just, there's some crazy shit that happens. And one of the things that's really cool about linguistics is that that wheel, what's what's involved in it is the anatomy of the airway, the anatomy of the brain, the um, proximity to other languages, the proximity to the language that you're natively learning, like all of these different aspects that come in. And then even, you know, then you get like the like the Chomskys and the Pinkards and you get these like really weird, like language trees, universal formula things that like your brain is preloaded. Now stop me if I'm wrong, but your brain is preloaded, not with language, but with the, uh, almost like, like part of your brain is gooey and it's made to fit a form. So that is the Chomsky in view. It's called universal grammar which many linguists uh, prescribe by. I don't know. I don't want to say believe in. Like, ascribe. But yes, ascribe by, yeah. Ascribe to. Ascribe to. Um, is this idea of universal grammar. Although I will say that there's always people who have other thoughts. Like there are right. other ways to go about thinking about it as well. As but yeah, be. the idea is that your brain, when you were born, has a template for language. It It's like a phone, Right. You have to still insert what settings you want and which language you want and set your clock and all that. But like it's it's preloaded like to learn language. The hardware yes. is is ready for the upload. So of no the matter software. which language you learn, you're ready to learn language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just crazy. That that was one of the things that I really liked about, you know, one of the things you were learning. But uh now to switch gears just slightly, we'll come back to the um to to linguistics specifically, but, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about was like one of the, what, what do you think was the biggest change from undergrad to grad? I thought it was a pretty big jump, not necessarily in difficulty necessarily, but just, I felt like my trajectory 
through undergrad was kind of like, okay, I'm learning. But then the minute I hit grad school, it was just like taking off. It almost seemed like agency. Like in undergrad, there was a lot more like structure, like do this work, do this work, do this work. And then once you got into your grad program, it was like, um, you are going to be graded off of the work you do, but you are also responsible for like deciding what work you're going to do. Yes, definitely that. But it's almost like you just have to get through. It's almost a little bit like the pie, except for not necessarily for understanding, but just in order to do the work. Like you have to get the basics done before you do the work, right? So for English, for example, you have to learn how to write an argument. You have to learn what the structure of the paper needs to be. You have to learn MLA formatting, right? You have to learn your ethos, pathos, logos. You got to learn theory, you just have to learn how to critique a paper and how to write a paper before you can go do it. And almost how to, it's almost funny because it's like you have to create a structure around thinking. Yeah. It's like, it's like how can your thought be substantiated? So, undergrad for English at least was how to write an argument and how to critically read a paper and develop your argument. They're basically teaching you how to do that. Then when you get to grad school, it's like, cool, you know how to do it, now go do it. And that is fun. Then that's when you're teaching, you're learning, but you're also teaching yourself at the same time because the teacher's like, cool, what are you interested in? Right. It's almost, it's Go like, learn. It's uh, it's almost what you would wish all of education would yeah. be. It's like, hey, what are you interested in? And now the only way that you fail is by not progressing and not working towards gaining knowledge. True. I mean, they still expect you to write a pretty high-level paper. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, like that's where the, the difficulty does come in with it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, over as long as you can have a good point, they don't necessarily care what you're writing about, as long as it relates and is a strong paper. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of an opportunity to talk about your uh, biggest flop. Oh, gosh. In grad school. <laughs> You had to bring it up. Well, I wanted to bring it up because it was funny. My biggest uh, failure. Well, I'm partially responsible for it. Uh, I got too excited. You got too excited. Um, I didn't necessarily understand. It was like the assignment. Well, okay. So let me just, let me. Preface. Yes. So in grad school, I made all A's except for one B. And it just really pisses me off. And it was, it's rough because that one B was literally the only grade for the entire class yeah, was, I was the final Yeah, I was doing paper. great through the entire class. I had no problems. I thought I was doing really well. And then just wrote my final paper. And professors have varying degrees of involvement with papers. Some professors are a little bit more involved. They want to help you. They collaborate with you. And they want your paper to be great. Other professors are kind of like, cool, bring me a paper at the end and let's see how it is. This professor was that... Kind of professor, and it right? was your first grad class. This right? was my second. Oh, second. It was. I took a Western class, and we watched Westworld, and it was also my introduction to Antonio Gramsci. Yeah, we okay. watched Westworld for the class. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I I remember that we watched it. I didn't remember that it was for the class. Yeah. Okay. So this was my introduction to Antonio Gramsci, who has since become just my favorite theorist. Uh, a communist. 
<laughs> Leader of the Italian Italian Communist Party. Well, yes. And but see, this is one of the, the things I was wanting to talk about was you know. Well, can I finish talking oh, about my ahead, paper? Sorry. Yeah, okay. Let uh, me let well, me explain all, why I got to be. This is all involved. Oh yeah yeah yeah. It's all involved in the paper. Though. Okay. Well. Okay. I just got really excited because I loved Gramsci. I got to talk about Westworld. I just thought, like, bring it on, right? I'm I'm not writing some mediocre paper. I'm just going for it with this paper. So I wanted to talk about hegemony and season one of Westworld, right? So my big that was problem number one. Season one of Westworld is pretty big, and right. hegemony is pretty big. So mm-hmm. I took on these two massive topics and, and tried you, to shove it into one then paper. Then you start exploring Gramsci. Then I, well, yeah, I was pulling from Gramsci's hegemony. Then I started exploring like robots and the history of robots and literature and how they relate to the topic of hegemony, which is a whole another huge topic. Right. And I just took on too much. I read a paper that just got to be. Because I couldn't focus in. The teacher wanted me to focus in on Westworld, and I focused more on Gramsci. Right. I switched them. I had mm-hmm. Gramsci using Westworld as examples, and she wanted Westworld with using Gramsci Gramsci pulled in. as examples. Yeah. 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 So it Which just, it, was a so- it was a pretty solid paper. It had solid ideas, it and just she wasn't, said that. It just wasn't It wasn't a topic. publishable paper. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and yeah, that just, it, it haunts me. Which I think that was... The reason I say that I'm a little bit responsible was I was kind of excited about it too, but I was I, like, we were watching Westworld and talking a lot about Westworld, but then whenever it came down to your paper, it was almost like I even wanted you to talk more about Gramsci. Well, and you know, it really he's is such an interesting character. The jump too from undergrad to grad school is. I feel like an undergrad. Hey, if you wrote a paper and the professor see that you tried hard. Your like professors just want you to do well. They mm-hmm. want you to care. If you care and they see you're putting effort in, nine times out of ten, they're going to work with you because I, they just want people to be involved. Right. Grad school, it's like, look, everyone here wants to be here. Write a good paper. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't a strong enough paper. Yeah, so. which is sad. But one Thanks of, for reminding me of that. Yeah, one of the <laughs> things I wanted to bring up about it, though, was what I thought was cool was the other side of communism. Like, you know, everybody... Everybody focuses on Marx and it's all, you know, which Marx has. Very intentionally, I think. Yes. Like we very intentionally focus on Marx and not other. Well, and that's what I think. That's what I think is interesting is because if you're looking at. Now, granted, I am not a communist by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) But if you're if you're looking at communism and you almost want the. Like communism was great. And I know you've said this before, but communism was great in its critique of capitalism, but not in its like um, proposal for a society. Well, yeah. So let me just explain just really quickly because commun- like you, okay, like you said, Marx does a great job laying out the critiques of capitalism. I do think his manifesto does a good job critiquing it. Again, it does not propose any good ideas to follow through with. Um, Another thing with Marx is that he kept saying there was going to be the proletariat revolution, Mm -hmm. right? The masses are going to rise up. So then when Gramsci comes around, which was like late 1800s, early 1900s, and this was under like Mussolini, and he's looking around saying, why is there no revolution? What's, What's going on? There's supposed to be a revolution. And he is in prison 
for like fighting against fascism and nobody cares or like that's what he's saying it's like well and they, i don't it was, get it it was fat it was communist the communist party rose to control in italy and then they turned around became be, being fascists and said okay well anybody who is uh, proposing a form of communism that is not our form of communism is now an enemy of the state. And then they start locking all these people up, you know, which I think uh, I want to also do another episode in the future over, you know, I, I actually think that what we need to focus on politically as a culture is instead of dividing it as uh, Democrats and Republicans, we need to divide the dividing line should be fascist and non-fascist well hold on let me just but. so okay so gramsci comes along he said like he sees that there's no revolution and so he's curious mark said there's going to be a revolution mark had valid critiques what's happening and so that is what gramsci writes about he tries to explain what's going on and he does so in what's called now like the prison notebooks because he just wrote. He was in prison for like 11 years and he just wrote the entire and time. And some of that he just like remembered it, right? He like, um, didn't, he, didn't he write it in his head kind of? I don't know. I mean, I know he did actually write down a lot, so I don't oh, know. Okay. Um, but he just he, he just dove into people and like why why do we conform to this? Why do we agree to this? So he goes into this idea of consent, hegemony, all these things, which then I loved and took that into linguistics. Right. So, yeah. So that's why I think he's super beneficial is because he's not necessarily trying to promote an ideology to follow. He's just trying to break down and explain what's currently going on mm -hmm. and still is going on. It's almost like a roadmap for how the masses are controlled. Yeah. Because I think that's what bothers – if you're a true communist, like ideologically – uh, mostly it's you're bothered that the fact that the, the exploitation of the masses and the fact that the masses are the ones that have all this power, but they're the ones that are actually the most exploited. Well, like, for example, with Westworld, <laughs> where I was going in my B-rated paper was the idea of consent. These robots, if you've seen season one of Westworld, say that they consent to this, right? Like they, they say, sure. Like, and I can't remember all the lines now that they use, but basically like they say that they love it. Right. Dol Dolores loves the, or what's she say? Like I choose to see the beauty in this world. Right. What choice does she have? And is she really giving consent there? Well, and I think it, it's always interesting in Westworld specifically when he's inter interrogating or like running a diagnostic on the, the machine, they're sitting there naked and he, and he can give these commands that just shut you down. Yeah. You know, uh, it'll be like, run diagnostic. And then the machine changes. They sit differently. And then they're able, then he can just ask them any question and they'll tell him any answer, you know, yeah. completely truthful. So they don't really have the agency to have consent. Right. And so even if, even if the machine says, no, I'm happy, this is my life, well... Is that you saying that you're happy that this yeah. is your life? Or have you been pre-programmed to say that you're happy and that this is your life? Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up because I actually really liked that paper. I thought it was fun and it was interesting. It's funny because even though it wasn't a uh, well-written paper, I did learn a ton from the research from it. So it, it did help me. I mean, it like I said, it really did put me in the direction 
of sociolinguistics. Right. Which is what then I continued on with the entire time. So And so one of the things, the other things I wanted to talk about uh, in regards to grad school was I really feel like, and I don't, you know, um, what's that character in The White Lotus, the young girl? We just Are the two it. young girls? Oh, oh. The, Paula. Yeah, Paula and... Her friend. Her I can't friend. remember her name. Anyway, we just the, watched it. If you watch the first season, there's these two like college girls, like woke college girls. And uh, I thought it was funny because like what they were focusing on was like colonialism, you know, or post-colonialism. And, and especially there, <clears throat> it takes place in Hawaii. And so it's really easy to see this like colonial. As they're staying at a resort. Yeah. This colonial. That's taking up exactly. the Exactly. They're like, so, they're the so mad about colonialism, yet they're, <clears throat> they're it, you know? Um, but I, I did think that that was interesting. I thought it was funny because it was in that, you know, you just got out of grad school and they're talking about colonialism. And I've, I really felt like one of the themes that you kept running into throughout most of your classes was this tie to colonialism and the fact that like language has been used, uh, as this, you know, almost like hammer to control, uh, co colonialized individuals and colonialized, uh, groups. And the fact that it's interesting that a lot of those same markers are present in our society, in our current culture. Yeah, so that was actually the first paper I wrote in grad school. Um, I feel like I have a few key classes. I learned something in every single class I took. They were all great, but I have a few key classes that really, I think, shaped my research. And so the first class I took, the first class that everyone has to take um, for English, because I was like English linguistics, so it's still under the English department. So every everyone has to take critical theory. Um, which theory, it's hard to describe to people because it's just ways of thinking, ways of critically analyzing texts and the world. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a lens that yeah, you can view the yeah. world through. Um, so one of them is colonialism, well, to, uh, colonialism and post-colonialism. So that was really one of my first introductions to that. But it's so closely woven with language. You cannot disconnect colonialism and language. So it was funny as I was reading specifically Franz Fanon and Chinua Achebe about their experiences with colonialism. And they both explicitly talk about the language as part of it, right? For both of them, they were stripped away from their native language. They were told that the native language is stupid, ignorant, um, sign of a savage. And the only way to be correct is to learn the new language, Right. Which, if you think about how language operates after six, you no longer acquire language, you have to learn a language, and it gets much more difficult. So for a lot of these, they're taking students and failing them if they're not learning, if they're not speaking the right language. Uh, which I think for one of them was English, one of them was Italian, or French. French, French yeah, French. Um, and so that's what they said, like, the, the only way they could succeed is that they spoke that language the the language of the colonizer so it didn't matter how smart they were it didn't matter what how good they did at anything if they could not speak and write well in that language 
Um, and then even more so, it became like disconnected from their family. Well, that's they were I, shamed if they spoke the native that's language. That's what I think is interesting is in order to be successful in the eyes of the colonizer, you have to perform something that then makes you ostracized. Yes, you have from to cut all ties from that yeah. previous culture. That's what they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was not. Oh, that wasn't an accident. An accident. Yeah, it wasn't an accident. So then, what I did with my papers, I talked about the current school system, because when you go back and read Fanon and Achebe and how they talk, like talked about language in the schools, it was pretty similar to what we do today, right? Like you show up and you speak standard American English. It doesn't matter what you speak at home. It doesn't matter that there are many different dialects and languages in America. You speak the one target language or you fail. Which, I mean, it that's literally my mom's story. Yeah. Like, my mom grew up in, uh, Me- she's a Mexican uh, in America in a rural community where all of the teachers in the school were white, you know, native English speakers. So she spoke Spanish at home too, you know. And so she was eight, but she had a unique advantage over a large portion of her class that she had a bunch of older siblings who had all learned English. So she grew up as a native speaker of both, which I think is interesting. It's um, similar to both of the writers that you were talking about, right? They both grew up natively speaking both. Um, so I think they were a little bit later, but they, they both know both now. Yeah. No. Wh- wh- who is the one that? Oh, wrote? Derek Walcott is oh, a Caribbean what author that's who what I'm is of. phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's who I was thinking and of. And he talks about that. Like he has a claim to both. Right, right. They are both his culture. Right. And so like that's my mom, right? She, My mom... Uh, she speaks English and she speaks Spanish and she has full command of both languages. But she was in class with a lot of kids who did not have full command of both languages. They only spoke Spanish and that, that was their life was speaking Spanish uh, with their, with their family, with the people around them. And then they'd have to go to school and now they'd like get stuck in the corner if they spoke Spanish but they didn't shamed. have, yeah, they got and shamed. This is kind of what I talk about in my paper too, is when is shame ever supposed to be used in a classroom? Like how, if you, if the goal is to educate students, how is shaming them for using their home language educating? Right. Is the goal here really education? Right. Or is, is that it what, oppression or control? Control. I mean, I just don't get it. And so then to, um, which we may have spoken about this before. I don't remember if we've discussed this on the podcast, but the Oakland abonics debate. Mm-hmm. No, I think we have. I don't know. I don't know if we've explicitly, but you can go into that. Real so quick, it was that's... 1996. I'm pretty sure that the Oakland school district proposed legitimizing abonics or what's now known as African American English. Um, because it is. So even during that time, literally every linguist came together, held a conference and said, yes. African-American English is legitimate. It's grammatical. You can diagram its sentences the same way you dialect. do. Yeah, it is just a dialect, but it is systematic. Like, it's, it's grammatical. So the schools weren't trying to go teach all the students AAE. They weren't trying to take out standard English. They were just saying, look, if we can legitimize it and not shame our students for it, they may be more open to learning standard English. And if they can use it in the classroom as a tool, it may benefit them by like by being able to help them teach standard English, right? If, like, if the teachers even can use AAE to teach 
standard English, right? Well, and if Which it, is what they also do a lot of times in second language classrooms. Yeah, I was going to say also if, like, for instance, something that has nothing to do with standard American English, like chemistry, right? If you're able to communicate with a like, or so even if the teacher, if a kid comes in and is speaking Ebonics in the classroom, if the teacher understands that has nothing to do with their intelligence, it's not related to... You know, or if a kid speak in, you know, broken, you know, they, what do they call it? Uh, Spang- uh, Spanglish. Yeah. You know, speaking something like that, that has nothing to do with their capacity for retaining information or for understanding information. Well, and so another one was in 1979. This was earlier. This was um, Ann Arbor School. Basically went to court. The teachers were saying, like, we're not... There was a group of teachers saying we we cannot teach the black students the same way. They need different tools for learning. They're speaking basically a, like there's not much of a difference between a dialect and a language. Let me just put that out there. Um, they can be very similar. They can be very far apart. So basically, this the teachers were saying like these students are speaking a different language, and then we're expecting them to perform in this other language. There's a reason they don't perform well in school. Um, we don't have the right tools. And so, yeah, they, the school ended up winning saying, yes, you need to, you need to provide adequate, adequate, uh, tools for your students to learn, right? Resources. resources. Yeah. Resources. Um, and so one way it can, of doing that is actually using like African-American English in the classroom and in, in order to help them, right? Like legitimize their language and help them learn standard English. Mm-hmm. But from both of those, not much change has happened uh, after the 1996 Oakland one. There was a huge backlash. It was highly controversial, and I don't think the school district even passed it. Um, it just goes to show how much we have against this, which is funny, and it doesn't make sense, which almost then kind of was a catalyst for my research. Like, why? what is going on here, right? And, and so we're using this as an example because it's one of the things that we're like, in close proximity to, but I know that this exact same thing exists in like England and there's other, there's oh, other countries. Well, I mean, where, I worked for a VIP kid, right? China. Which, so in China, the students learn English in the schools. They are learning English, right? They know that that's the language they need to learn, but they're learning from a Chinese teacher oftentimes. So what they want are English speaking teachers. They want American English teachers. So the company I worked for a VIP kid connected these Chinese students to American English teachers so that they could also learn learn the correct pronunciation, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, even like British English and American English, they're both correct. Well, I I was even speaking, I was speaking Northern England and Southern England. Oh, yeah. You know, like you have, or like Ireland, right? Like those those, um, prejudices, prejudices or whatever, are like as old as Western history, like where you would have all these prejudice and all these. Uh, We're always going to find a way to discriminate against people, right. and they often use language to do it. Yeah, cultural, uh, like what would that be? Like cultural delineation based off of anything that you can. So, like for instance, when we go back to you, when you were like Paul, and um, it it is a way if I enforce my way of speaking and say that the way that I speak and the way that I understand things is actually the pinnacle of understanding. 
then that gives me a um, a position of power. It gives me like a high, in, in the hierarchy of speaking, I'm at the top. Yeah. So it almost makes you like reinforce the system, right? Like I'm going to reinforce and say, no, um, you know, your favorite color has to be blue because blue is the best color. Well, and so another topic I talk about a lot with a lot of my research. But that's a choice. So that's not a good example. But um, Is the idea of myth making. Mm-hmm. Which I would love to do a whole podcast just over myth. And I don't mean myth as in like Greek mythology. I mean myth as in um, constructing ideologies. Like a Roland, Roland Barth, Bart, Barth, he's French, I don't know how you say his name, um, is the key guy for this kind of myth. And like cultural mythology. But basically, so, I mean, you see it everywhere. You see this idea of grammar being linked to intellect. You can't get on the internet without seeing that somewhere, right? Like how many arguments just end with people just correcting each other's grammar? What I loved when you were going over uh, Wall Street bets and you were talking about like the language that was created in there. And hold on, like, hold we, on. Let me get oh. to that. Let me Let me just finish this one thought real quick because I think we all know that exists, right? I don't know how many times, and which it's funny now because I have a whole folder on my phone. Anytime I come across something on Facebook or Reddit that is shaming someone for the grammar, I take a picture of it and save it. Because it's really hard to prove ideology sometimes. It's really hard to prove myths. And so our society believes that good grammar means that you are smart. And so if you turn in a paper with sloppy grammar or mm. broken English, you're dumb. And so, like I said, on Facebook even, like, um, I seen that, and oh, well, I can't listen to anything from you. You're You're obviously not very smart. You're an idiot because you didn't use this correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, That happens all the time. So that, it's just so fascinating. So first of all, I think you can see how easily if broken English means that you're dumb, that becomes a race and class issue. It just can't not be, right? right? But second... I was just amazed that it's so prominent in our society and that the school system almost perpetuates it. Not almost. Does. Like does specifically perpetuate it. When, and, it, and I don't know, I, I would love to talk to someone else in a different discipline because I know with linguistics, right, linguists have a hard time getting what they research into the school system. It is difficult. This. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not blaming teachers. I don't know necessarily who's pushing back against it, but like the way we teach grammar in schools isn't beneficial. The way we discuss grammar in schools isn't beneficial. The way we teach second languages isn't beneficial, but it's, but linguists have all the information and nobody ever wants to take it and do something mm-hmm. with it. So sometimes, and I, let me put on my tinfoil hat, it feels very intentional. Why do we choose to keep teaching Standard American English is the only correct grammar. When every linguist is like back here waving their hands saying, excuse me, like descriptivism is is good. And these grammars are all legitimate and and equal. It's almost hiding the knowledge. Like it's one of those things, like you said, when you finally got into Dr. Jacobson's class and he started explaining this to you, you didn't even realize the ignorance that you were in well, right like you you now see like 
this is what like it, it's like you were always excited about grammar and i think you have a natural talent for diagramming sentences and just different which stuff which like you that. still do in syntax i right. mean that's- but but what i'm saying is like like once you, like it's like he opened up a door oh, yeah. to a room that you didn't like almost like a playroom that you didn't even know existed well and not you know? okay i'll just put it bluntly right high school me would have listened to african american english saying that poor person cannot speak that is a degradation to english right and then learning i think that's what was so see and i think that was intentional that was intentional like it's it's intentional to have the 17 year old individual either hating themselves or hating um a subsect of the culture you know? Yeah. Like you either feel like you're the misfit and seem like in a lot of ways, that's what I felt like. You know, I was never very good at school, uh, on paper. I was, you know, I was never, so I always felt like disempowered by the system. Like I was disempowered by the school system, but it's interesting that they draw a line in the sand and they're almost like, we want it. We will either want the kid to feel empowered by the the school system and we're going to teach them all this bullshit that's not true or we want them to feel disenfranchised okay so there's an amazing article by a guy named ian cushing who is his research is on language policy and there he has this great article about language policies in school in schools and he interviews all these teachers and just talks to them about how they view grammar and so all like how we use Mm. grammar police word jail um some teachers were talking about having like sirens that they use when people use incorrect language well and people do call Um, themselves like nazis grammar Grammar nazi yeah exactly it's like i'm sorry when is it good to be a nazi do you know what the nazis did and so it puts these it it enforces this idea of a linguistic authority. Mm. And so one that I, it just is so ironic. That's what he even says in the paper. It's like the paper just writes itself because one teacher had the big brother poster that said, I am correcting your grammar. Like I I'm watching you and correcting your grammar or something like that. And it's just weird. It's like, okay, when, when are we on the side of big brother? Mm-hmm. But now it's okay. Like we're on the side of Nazis. We're on and the side big of... Big Brother. Yeah. We need to enforce this linguistic authority or mm-hmm. else you're wrong and deserving of word jail. Right. Of jail. Yes. The police. Right? So then he talks about like if you don't speak standard English or you speak poor grammar, you're a criminal. It like reinforces the state's control over every aspect of your life. Yeah. And so it's weird because sometimes and when authority. I talk to people about this, I sound like a crazy person, right? I'm like, no, the teachers and big brother and grammar and it's all related and jail. And people just like look at me like I'm a crazy person. Mm-hmm. But it, it's all connected, you know? Oh, yeah. It's well, all there. I mean, it's funny that she inadvertently made that connection because in um 1984 a huge portion of 1984 is controlling the language and it's like yeah it's you know making people do double think and controlling how people speak and what you say when you say it and how you say it and in in a lot of ways if you say the wrong thing it exposes you to the scrutiny of the state yeah you know and i i do think that that's one of those things that it like, it's difficult it's difficult because there's so many kids 
Now, granted, are uh, the hoops that the state has set up in order for people to define themselves as successful do make some people successful. Like I would, I would point to like you and like my sister, and there's a couple of people who did really well in in the you know that progression of uh, education. And but then there's I feel like a lot of people like me as well who uh, don't do well at it. And so you start to think, well, that's just not for me. Like education, getting educated, growing my knowledge is not for me. Whenever they've miss, um, they've, uh, the, the example that they have given us is not right. You know? So you almost say like, no, I can't, I can't kick a soccer ball, but the soccer ball that you were given was actually a bowling ball. So you don't think you can kick it because it's a bowling ball. It's not going to go anywhere. Whereas other people were given soccer balls, you know? So yeah. you're like, I don't play soccer, but you don't even have a proper view of what soccer is. And so I wonder if that's what the education system is like. You have certain people who are empowered by the education system and then will fight to legitimize it. Yes. And then you have other people who are disempowered by that education system. And it it's almost like, you you can't even form the thought as to what about it is is frustrating you you know and yeah. i mean i can say this because i've been in that situation it's taken me a lot of years and a lot of self reflection and a lot of reflection on the culture to be able to say some of the things that i'm saying or even understand why i felt dif- disenfranchised or why i felt you know bitter about it you know so I just want to point out that everything that we're talking about right now is considered sociolinguistics, which is what I'm interested in. It's the idea of language and power, lingu- linguistic hegemony, language policy, all of that, linguistic discrimination. It's basically, yeah, how how does society use language? How does language act in a society? So... I don't want people to conflate this one topic with all of linguistics. This is one aspect of it. Right, right. Um, it's just the, one of the aspects that you... It's uh, the one that I am passionate about. Yeah, and that you can't... That it, it seemed like it kept getting brought up. Yeah. You know, just through the classes you were taking. Now, uh, I have some other things, but we're already at an hour. We'll um, just go a little bit more. <laughs> so what, the, what I really wanted to give you a chance to talk about, because I know you want to, is the basic concept for a layperson. So this is where, you know, you were saying that you wanted to talk about linguistics, like specific rules for yeah. English and stuff like that. Um, this is kind of like the spot that I was planning okay. on. Okay. Well, I just wanted that. to talk a little bit about linguistics because, first of all, linguistics is so broad, right? It's just like saying science. It's like, yeah, like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. People are like, oh, linguistics. So do you speak a lot of languages, you know? So I just wanted to break down because I think it's so fascinating. I think there's so much in it and there's so much to do with it. And I don't think most people realize it. Right. And I think I've talked a little bit about this before, but who even listens? So let's go over it again. Right. No one listens. (laughs) So the main parts of linguistics are phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, and then you have pragmatics and then you can have sociolinguistics. Now you can also have like psycholinguistics, but that all gets a little bit more interdisciplinary but yeah like syntax semantics phonology morphology those are like your pillars you even for sociolinguistics the reason that i can say african-american english is grammatically correct is because i know 
phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, right? Like I can go back to syntax and diagram their sentences because I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So like there, you, any ling- linguist has to have a working knowledge of those. Um, I don't know how much you want me to get involved in that, but basically what I was talking about earlier with prescriptive and descriptive, that's linguistics 101. Like that's just the first thing you need to know is that linguists are looking at what is being said, right? How to, how do native speakers speak? And what's really, really fascinating with it is that native speakers have rules. Like I was even saying with Emmett, using ed right like english uses ed as a past tense now that's a newer thing we still have all of our irregular verbs that are a little bit archaic but like we have a system and now because english especially is so such a conglomerate of other languages there's no hard and fast rule really but english okay like i had a few that i was going to name off just because i thought they were fascinating and just maybe to give people an idea of what I'm talking about when I'm saying descriptivism. So first, a really easy one to understand is syntax, subject, verb, object. English is a subject, verb, object sentence. There are others, right? Subject, object, verb, object, verb, subject. Like you can have other... Uh, arrangements, arrangements, formulas, formulaic. Yeah. And English actually has a really strong syntax, which is really cool. So I know people will say, I don't know, people get really weird about language and grammar, about what they care about and don't care about. But what was it? I saw one year someone talking about gift, using gift as a verb. I will gift this to you. Oh, well, that's wrong. Gift is a noun. But that's what's beautiful about English is our syntax is so strong. You can move words around and gift can act as a verb. That's cool. Like, that is a feature of the language. Right. It is not a flaw. And so that's one of them. And so our word order is pretty strict, right? Like, we might have determiner, adjective, noun, adverb, right? The old, well, uh, um, verb, adverb. The old red car ran slowly. Now, you can play with it a little bit. Uh, slow... The old red car slowly ran. You can, you know, sometimes you can switch them around, but you can't say red car, the old. You can't, or the car, old, red. Yeah. Ran, you know. But now other languages might have differing orders. So like that. Or it might not matter the order. Right? Yeah, some there are some languages that have a pretty free order and they have a case system to mark what's what. English is, uh, our case system has pretty much dropped off because we have such a strong syntax we don't need that so like we have these internal rules right we don't even know that we're doing it and so i talked to you about this one the other day but our adjectives have kind of a word order that we put them in now none of us can say it and again there's no hard and fast rule because there's other things that can mess this up too like compound words or vowels which i'll get into in a minute but we typically have a set order so they say that the typical order is opinion, size, physical quality, shape, age, color, origin, material, type, and purpose. That that's the order that they... That adjectives go in. Now, another interesting rule that English has is called a blot reduplication, which is if we are using multiple words with vowels, we like the high front vowel to go first. 
So think of ping pong, tick-tock, chit-chat, tic-tac-toe. We start with the high vowel and move backwards. So sometimes that can mess up our adjectives. If we have adjectives with a string of vowels like mm. that, then the ablot reduplication is going to come first. Mm. So it supersedes. Yeah, which is actually that this gets into theoretical linguistics and it's called optimality theory. And it's basically like which rules come first in each language. The basic idea is that all languages have all rules, but some supersede them in other languages where they change in other languages, which completely give you a different variation of languages. And what's funny when you say all this is like you're you're putting all this structure to it, like um, science, science to it, right? Actually being able to analyze and break all this stuff down. But if you're standing in a group of people and somebody says something and it doesn't sound right, you don't know the blot theory or you don't know all these different things, but you know – Mm, that yeah, that violated know. a rule. If I say, hey, do you want to go play some pong ping? Now, you know it's the wrong word, but it just, some sometimes it sounds yeah, wrong. Yeah, just kind of like, it, it almost just hits you a little funny or, you know. Or like hickory dickory dock. Like there's a reason it's not the opposite. Like some of these things, we can't explain them, but they just sound wrong. Right, right. And we know it, right? If yeah, we yeah. hear someone learning English and they mess up, you know it. You don't always know initially why. But you know it. Right. And so it's kind of interesting. Like if you think of um, your vowels, like e, e, a, a, you just worked your way down your throat. And so in English, and there's a lot of other languages. This one's actually fairly common. We like to start at the front and work our way to the back. We have a system. Which is weird. It is weird and completely random. Um, Another one for English is that we like consonant clusters or we allow consonant clusters. Some languages like Hawaiian and Japanese are pretty strict. Like they have to have a a vowel in between every... Yes, they do not want consonant clusters. They will separate them with a vowel. Um, English is pretty impressive in that regard. So even the name, I think of this because we pass a town that has this name on it. I think anytime we go to Fort Worth called Goldthwaite, which is like an old name, you know, which now this has a syllable boundary in it which does change how we analyze words but still goldthwaite l-d-t-h-w that is five consonants that is impressive you know right um even the word like stress s-t-r that's still three consonants right in a row right um i think of the word irked because even though there's that ed at the end if we were to write it phonetically you don't put that e there it's just a t irked we're saying t there so you have R-K-T. So, like, that's pretty cool. English allows for that. Other languages do not allow for that. So, in that regard, we're actually kind of flexible, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, just I'll do one more. But it's another one is called insertion, that English doesn't really like our vowels to go together. So, we don't mind our consonants grouping up, but we don't really like vowels. So, we can have two vowels like sheep, but they say the same sound. I'm talking about when they have differing sounds. So there's not a ton of them, but think about like the word co-op. If you listen really closely to how I'm saying it, co-op, I put a W in there or nuance. Yeah. Now this can change from dialect to dialect. And it's oftentimes how you can tell a um, native speaker versus a non-native speaker. Mm. So for example, we also don't like vowel final words. 
So take hello, for example. We don't like O being the last right. sound. Hello. Hello. So think about a Spanish speaker. Like a um, someone who grew up speaking Spanish their whole life and they're just not learning English. I almost think of like an Asian speaker with hello, like hero. Well, I'm hold on. I was not going like that. <laughs> not what I was talking about. But they'll oftentimes say hello. Hello. Right, they end with that O. They end with an O. And then, especially in Texas. Which they... Hello. The (laughs) Spanish language ends in a lot of vowels, right? You got A and O. Yeah, they don't have the vowel insertion as... I mean, they may do it some. I don't actually know. But they don't do it as much as English does it. So we don't know that, but we do it. Mm. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of words like that. Which is funny, because if you look at the word yellow, we put a W on the end. You might as well put a W on the end of hello. Right, right. You know like, what I mean? Why so don't you put that, why don't you insert that W because the W is there in yeah. the pronunciation. Yeah, so it's just kind of funny. That's a rule that we do. We don't, I don't, in my brain, think co-op. I don't like two O's together, so let me put a W in between it. Co-op. I don't think that. Right. Our brains just do it because that's what we grew up learning. Right. We, our brain is listening to people do that and is duplicating it. And then it's just, it's almost like uh, editing the code, like behind the scenes. Yeah. Like, oh, we're just going to do this. We're just going to start doing this because we don't want to look like And so insertion is actually a really popular one because like I said, there's a lot of languages that don't like consonant clusters. So they have to separate them. So what do they do? They use insertion. That's actually like fairly common in a lot of among a lot of languages. Mm. So it's really cool to see these internal rules that we have. These are just a few, right? Well, and what's what's really funny is that that they're not rules that were given to the language. It's just, it's just what the brain hap- what the what the brain does. And then what's really cool about it is that's what's you can't fake. That's yeah. what's really hard to fake is those things that just happen and that then tells who you are. You yeah. know, or like an aspect of like there's uh like what's what's Nanny say for Hawaii? Ho- Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. You know, like that's probably very distinctly generational and regional. It is, yeah. You know? And so like there's almost like little ways like that where you can't hide who you are or like what you were brought up doing, you know, or taught. And it's almost it's just an interesting, like, aspect of the person, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, so, I, I have a couple other concepts. Are, is there anything other basic concepts that you want to talk about for, the, like, the just the general? I mean, I know we're going to do more linguistic shows, like, yeah. and, and probably more specific uh, concepts. And I, I honestly almost wonder if YouTube videos or something like that, because even as you were talking, like I was almost like, man, I wish I had this like almost written out. Yeah, that that's what it is hard it to go too deep without writing some of it down. Because so, when people can see it, it does make it way easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we, we can end with this because I, I think that this will be a fun little little thing to tie up the conversation is the uh, dis you've talked about it a little bit today, but the, the dissonance between academia and application. 
Yeah. And one of the things I really think is funny is I think that this is where a lot of the hatred. Now, granted, I think ap- academia as a mechanism, as a machine, that there is a lot of criticism that is due to it. You know, like that. that yeah, it, that for it sure. is earned. Like, like the the fact that it's really just a money making thing for football. Like it's it's that's what college is. Is college is just these stupid sports that literally have nothing to do with anything. I mean, it's like this uh, almost relic of. In my, There's a lot of other problems too, just within academia, right. not even discussing football. There are issues. In oh academia, yeah, 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 for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's but one of the things I was thinking is interesting is like, you know, you get a lot of hatred from I I, I will generalize here and say conservatives. Who say, well, like, man, you know, academia is so dumb. Look at critical race theory or look at like a writer like uh, Judith Butler, you know, and it's almost taken out of context so much. Like, there's, it is. There's, it is and, and I even I even think of like a lot of stuff with linguistics and, and a lot of the uh, pushback that I've like seen you receive, like. When you're when you're teaching some, or uh, explaining some of these things that are real fact, um, not opinions, and the the amount of pushback that you get from some of these concepts from people like just fighting for the shit that oh, they don't even people understand. Will, are you just and they the don't nail know, against me. they don't have no clue what they're talking about. I mean, yeah. it would be as if a physicist were to come to me. And he was like, well, you know what's kind of interesting about gravity? And he explains to me this this concept of gravity. And I say, well, you know, to me, that just doesn't really make sense. It's like, you, you, have, no, even- <laughs> you have no basis as to, to disagree. I have no basis to disagree with a physicist because I have no knowledge of it. Yeah. But people is- think that because they speak language – that they yeah. have some sort of understanding or, you know, yeah, I guess understanding of language, you know? Yeah, and that's what's interesting is there's plenty of disagreements within linguistics, right? Like, linguists still argue over stuff all the time, but there are a few things that aren't really argued because every linguist would agree. And, like, one of them is that, like, for example, um, African-American English is a legitimate dialect. That's... No, no linguist is arguing against that. Right. There are, I mean, let's argue optimality theory. Sure. Let's argue how to go about using prescriptivism in school. Though Those are all things that can get highly controversial. But, so it's just kind of funny. Like, if people want to come up and disagree with me, that's fine. Like, I don't care if you disagree with me. Just know why you're disagreeing with me and let's discuss it. Well, and I think that what, you know, to go back to, you know, the intellectual journey, it's that's what I think is lost in our society. Now, granted, this I think it exists within academia, but it also is prevailing across our entire you know society where you can't be presented with a concept, mul- like mill that concept over in your head, and then use the growth that you have. You know what I'm saying? So, like for instance. If I'm approached with like critical race theory, right? And somebody explains critical race theory and we go deep into whatever. Now, the application of critical race theory in schools, that's iffy, 
right? It doesn't well, like there, it's I, hard to explain. It's it's hard to apply that theory, but thinking of that theory can take you intellectually and in, in, in put you in new uh, positions of thought, not necessarily saying you're going to convert to, to trying to be a proselytizer of the theory. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think this goes back to our binary opposition episode. Right. If people yeah, yeah. listen to it, there's many ways to be foreign against. Well, something. it's called a uh, politically non-binary. Yes, the name exactly. Of the that, that too. <laughs> um, but take critical race theory, for example, because it started out in academia. Like it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it in the academic setting, right? Then it gets taken out, and then people try to apply it in schools. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. It just is. There's varying levels of that. There are levels I agree with and levels I don't. That doesn't make the theory right or wrong. Do you know what I mean? Well, in that they take it out of... Like, okay, I guess this is maybe what I was going to say. Is... They take it out of the theoretical setting and then they put it into this like uh, practical application. Well, let me just maybe use this as a dangerous. Let me use this as an example because this exact thing happened with with Chomsky, for example. So Chomsky is a revolutionary linguist. He did revolutionize linguistics with his idea. He's also a prolific anarchist. Well, with his ideas of universal grammar, that did completely change. The scope of linguistics. So he came out with universal grammar. He is um, a syntactician. His work is dense. It is theoretical linguistics. It is very, very high level, right? Like even as a linguist, you study for years to really understand what he's talking about. So what happened is this idea came out It got super popular because it revolutionized linguistics. He's popular. He's a very popular scholar. And people thought, great, let's put that in schools. And guess what? They take universal grammar and start teaching it in high schools. (laughs) The teachers don't even know what they're teaching. Right. And so now you're teaching like doctoral level, I mean, at least grad school level material and giving it to high school students without any kind of structure, without proper training for the teachers, anything, and teaching it. And then guess what? It was a huge flop. Right. The teachers complained. The students complained. It didn't work, right? And so they just took it back out and went back to their old grammar. Yeah, it's... So I think that's just a good example for how things often happen, is academia will have great ideas, but these are theoretical ideas. They're not often made for practical application right away. They need to be crafted for practical application. Right. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Super interesting, though. Um, That was kind of, you know, um, there's a couple people. And now, granted, I'm, like I said, I'm not necessarily uh, for the side of institutions. I mean, I, I, you know, push comes to shove, I'm always going to side against institutions. Probably, probably, probably always on anything. Anytime there's an institution, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to be on the opposite side of that, you know, uh, if push comes to shove. But I do think that it's interesting that I think so much that's coming out of academia has been weaponized. And I don't like, now granted, I never take my tinfoil hat off, so I don't ever have to put it on. <laughs> but I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, in a lot of, like the freedom for the oppressed exists 
in some of the concepts that are being developed in academia. Like, for instance, yes. you know, like the well, colonialism okay. talking, the the uh, sociolinguistics, right? Like, all go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, everyone, not everyone, conservatives say the institution is liberal, right? Like, you go to school to become indoctrinated in liberal beliefs, mm-hmm. which has always been fascinating to me. And I get that I've gone to, like, they're both, both schools in Texas. Right. So I get that. And I'm not saying that people have differing experiences. I'm just simply talking that my experience has been nothing but good. My teachers, and I've had teachers of all different faiths, of all different political political beliefs, and they are encouraging of everybody. And they say at the very beginning, disagree with me. I'm teaching you to think. If you think differently, good, at least you're thinking. Mm-hmm. That is fine. I've never had a teacher try to tell me what I should be thinking. They They almost like give you direction in thinking differently. Yeah, like now what almost they... They're like, well, you might want to consider this and this and this, and then that will take you even further in your own direction. Yeah, you know? and that they all of my teachers have said it. Disagree, that's fine. Just tell me why you could disagree, of course. Like, you don't just get to disagree with no reasoning. But um, I did have a teacher that did specifically talk about it because they were talking about if you go on to teach freshmen, college kids. Like, you do have to be careful what you teach And she was saying, for the most part, students come in and they don't know why they think what they think, right? They don't realize that they've been brainwashed their entire life. Well, and it's just that they haven't been taught critical thinking. Mm. They don't don't know why they're thinking what they're thinking. They just believe whatever they hear in whichever news station or whichever book that they're reading or whichever theory they read, right? They hadn't critically thought about it. So then you get to school and you give them all these opposing viewpoints, not even trying to like put it on them, but just like, hey, all of this out here exists. Your one viewpoint is just one viewpoint. And guess what? It typically pulls the rug right out from under them and they have no foundation. Right. And that is the problem. And so like the teacher does, a lot of teachers do say like, be careful what texts you're having freshmen read or undergrad read because they do need to have a little bit of some knowledge before you just go like tear them apart as a human being (laughs) and not even meaning to, but like when they have no foundation to stand on and you're trying to throw some of these really, um, even maybe controversial theories at them, they need to be able to handle them and think about them before they just go home and say, guess what, mom and dad, my teacher's teaching me about this. Yeah. Or just like blindly believing whatever the teacher's it's like, saying. It's like it, it turns, uh, you know, a kid goes to college, their whole world's flipped upside down and they're like, well, I got to dye my hair pink and pierce my eyebrow. That's just, you know, I've, yeah, got, but usually, I've almost got to go so perpendicular to who I was because I've now been shown that who I thought I was was a lie. So I go perpendicular to it and that's a lie too. Like the perpendicular version of yourself is also a manufacturing. Yeah, lie. I mean, I'm not. I'm not necessarily going to get into that too much, but I just do. I want. Yeah, you that. can. Um, it just is interesting that a lot of times I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of times students don't come in with the. You strong did dye your hair pink. I did dye my hair pink. Thank God. <laughs> didn't like pierce my nose or anything. You didn't, yeah, you didn't I did get, get a couple tattoos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, and I will say, like, I think I've changed my mind on a lot of things since going to school, especially oh, yeah. grad school, well, and I which think is what it's supposed to be, right? That, I'm the, supposed to change my mind yeah, while people, learning. I, I wish more people were open to that. The, 
you know, I think we would have a completely different political landscape. We'd have a completely different professional landscape if people entered into things with an open mind and being able to say like, you know, I, you know, you don't have to change your morals to change your thoughts. Oh yeah. You know, you can still, you can still be a good person while growing intellectually and changing your perspective. I mean, that, that, I mean, I'd almost argue that that makes you a good person. Yeah, it requires it. (laughs) When presented with new information, you're open to changing your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had another professor who always said, like, it is okay to change your mind. If you come in class one day and you're arguing for this one stance and the next day you change your mind and you're arguing for the opposite of it, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to change your mind. You know, like you yeah, don't know what you convinced. don't know. Be yeah. convinced, you know, like be open now. Granted, also make it make the person who's trying to convince you like challenge them. But if they convince you, let them. Convince yeah, it's you, OK you know? to change your mind. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. I think we just get scared. Or if you see new information, you know, I think that's, that's probably one of the bigger aspects is, you know, if you thought you believed the earth was flat and now you see new information that shows you that the earth is round, allow yourself to progress in your, in your thought. You know, I think that's one of the, one of the things that I think is so uh, important in the ingestion of conspiracy theories right is the the more that you ingest of conspiracy theories the more you say i don't know if lizards from you know zeta reticula um mounted a ship and flew to the united to to the planet earth i don't know if that's true john f kennedy was killed by the cia Right. And so like you can look at all of these different conspiracy theories and then it, you then you develop a spectrum. Right. And and then it allow it almost allows you to be less manipulated because now you're able to see everything on a spectrum of plausible to non plausible. And it gives you a frame at which you can ingest the information. You know, you have to you have to have a frame of reference for reality. I feel like, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, the, like, for instance, uh, reading scholars, right. You may, like, I know I've heard you say, like, when you read Judith Butler, you were like, says some interesting things, presents some interesting concepts, but you still disagree with her on certain things. Well, well, that's an, that's an interesting one to point out. So just for people who might be listening, Judith Butler wrote Gender Troubles amongst many other books. She's a queer theorist. She's credited for a lot of ideas within like gender theory and non-binary, just uh, the LGBTQ, all of that. Her text is really good. Like she presents incredible information for what she's talking about. First of all, as a, as a fellow scholar, although I would never put myself on the level of Judith Butler, like I can still disagree with her thoughts as long as I have a valid reason to disagree or like valid resources to disagree with um, or backing up my disagreement. More than anything, I can just disagree with the application of her work. That's what, yeah. That's what I was going to say is, you know, you can, you can almost appreciate the scholastic endeavor at which they are presenting their idea. You know, 
we've uh, you've watched a little bit of the Lost Civil or Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix uh, with that foreign from Graham with Hancock. Graham Hancock. I have. Yeah. I started it. And so, are we uh, getting into that? No, 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 not deep, not deep. But I, I do think that that's it's one of those things like. I've been paying attention to that world for a long time and watching a bunch of different people in that world. And what's really interesting is like, um, and this, this, I don't know if it gets into this in the series or not. I haven't watched the whole thing, but, um, Jeremy shock, Dr. Shock, Jeremy shock. I think his name is Jeremy shock. Anyway, he's the guy who came out with the alternate dating on the Sphinx and he's a geologist and part of the reason he had an alternate dating on the Sphinx is because the enclosure of the Sphinx shows water erosion on it. And the last time that there was enough water in uh, the Giza Plateau to create that water erosion was long before they state that the Sphinx was built. So which indicates that the Sphinx enclosure was carved at a far later date. Well, he also thinks that there was um, a solar outburst event, and that's what caused the Younger Dryas extinction event. Well, Graham Hancock thinks that what caused the Younger Dryas extinction event was these asteroidal impacts on the North Atlantic ice sheet. So you have two guys who are looking at the same thing, kind of deducing the same concepts, right, that that there might be more to the archaeological story and the geological story than meets the eye uh, mainstream pre- presents, you know. But then they have these divergence within their I theories. I mean, that is academia. Well, right, right, right. Like that's no, like I said, no linguistic or no, no linguist is going to agree with another linguist 100% on every theory. But you can still appreciate their work. Oh, yeah. You know, like that, I guess that's what I was meaning is yeah. even though they're coming to the, they're drawing slightly different conclusions yeah you can still look at one and say well there's some validity that's how you keep the field progressing right yeah you almost have to have alternate theories and yeah and i think that that's where where it becomes dangerous is any time that people become uh you know indoctrinated or become you know cultish and start to say like oh well we have the answer we have the answer right then you start getting to where there's a right and a wrong and, um, you know, black and white. And then you start to have to, you know, fight against the, uh, the, what would that be? The hegemony, I guess, you know, like the predominant thought that everybody has to ascribe to. Same thing with language, you know, like everybody has to speak standard American Well, English. I think you're already kind of getting into this. So let me just preface it real quick. And this is a, I'm going to, uh, towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to use a preface for just other podcasts that we're going to make, other episodes. I think one of the reasons I really wanted to do an episode just about linguistics is because I feel like it crosses over into a lot of what we talk about, especially what I talk about. So the idea of prescriptivism versus descriptivism, the idea of linguist- linguistic hegemony, the idea of um, all dialects being equal... Um, the relationship between language and colonialism. These are all ideas that are with me through most any theory that I am researching, right? And I feel like I discuss that just a lot. And I think there's, it's helpful to have some context for it. Is this the, is this you and out? What were you saying? 
Yeah, this is my preface for future preface. episodes. Okay. That because I feel like I've already done it in previous episodes where I've talked about language, but then I never know if people listening actually know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just wanted to give some context for like, hey, whenever I'm saying prescriptivism, here's what I'm talking about. Here's why linguists don't study that. Here's why we kind of push back against it. Um, here's my thoughts on the school system. Like, let me let me put some of this out there because that's kind of that informs a lot of our thoughts on other things as well. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's. You know, you going through the process of getting your master's degree has definitely pushed me intellectually, just being in the proximity of you doing that, you know, just yeah. seeing it and everything. And so, yeah, no, I, uh, I think we've gone gone long enough on this thing. We, uh, uh, we're trying to, so, just so people in the, in the podcast world know, I've ha- I've been a little distracted because the computer keeps flashing over to our screen saver. Yeah. And uh, it keeps being like the pictures of our babies. Aww. So I keep seeing them. And I'm like, oh, how cute. And it's very distracting. But we're at an hour and 37 minutes now. Oh, wow. I'm sure you can cut this down a little bit. <laughs> I don't think I got much of it out. But anyway, thank you all for listening. Um, you know, I we're, our goal for this next year is to be a lot more consistent out a lot more content i think and you know be be a little bit more professional about it i you know if if i could just do this as my full-time job i would love it you know i think that this this kind of would be a dream of mine you know we're a long way from being anywhere close to that uh but you know y'all listening to the end of this episode uh, helps take us in a step in the right direction. And so if you have gained anything from this episode, if you've enjoyed it, uh, like, share, and subscribe, you know. Uh, we're, we're planning on doing some stuff down the road, so if you're looking for, like, you know, be looking for an email list to start coming out or something like that, you know. So anyway, uh, any way you can support the podcast is very appreciative and, and really helps to progress the project. So like holding hands with your toes I'm, kind of funny. I'm, well i'm holding hand with foot with my hand not hands well you know what i mean colloquially you're holding hands holding appendages. you're holding appendages yeah. it's just kind of distracting yeah. so i have nothing left to say okay I have, nothing, <laughs> I have nothing left to say either so anyway thank y'all for listening and uh until next time peace goodbye